don't let the transfer pricing tail wag the business dog isn't something that rolls off the tongue of every transfer pricing expert we know. But when we invite Barbara Montagani on the Fiona show, we're betting we'll hear those very words. I mean, she shared her view when we spoke with her about transfer pricing in a recession. Don't let the transfer pricing tail wag the business dog. And she worked it in when we spoke with her again about dispute resolution. You know, as a transfer pricing person, I, you know, become more and more convinced of this the longer I go. Companies can get into trouble when they let the transfer pricing tail wag the business dog. Mm -hmm. And did we just catch her quoted as saying it in a recent Bloomberg tax article? You gotta respect how she stays on message. Hello, everyone. It's Matthew DeMello, your host of The Fiona Show, Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. Barbara Montagani is back by popular demand. We didn't even need to bribe her. As you may recall from previous episodes, when it comes to transfer pricing, Barbara has done it all. In her 20-plus years in transfer pricing, she's worked at big four accounting firms, advising clients on strategic ways to strengthen their transfer pricing positions. She's launched and still runs her own transfer pricing tax law practice, where she helps clients assess their transfer pricing risks, solidify their documentation, and prepare advanced pricing agreements. And here's what makes her especially relevant for today's topic. Once upon a time, she was a competent authority analyst for the IRS, where she negotiated double taxation settlements between the U.S. and Japan, Denmark, Belgium, and Canada, among other countries. And with this inside knowledge of how transfer pricing is viewed at the IRS, Barbara is the perfect person to lead us through the ins and outs of transfer pricing compliance in the United States. Her recent article for Bloomberg Tax, the principal documents, is it time to move on, discusses the current documentation requirements in the U.S. and how Barbara might like to change them. Thank you so much for being here once again, Barbara. You can earn CPE credits for listening to this podcast. Here's how it works. We're planting three CPE code words in this episode. Send all three to the Fiona Show at xbs.ai. That's one word. The Fiona Show at xbs.ai, and we'll reply with your CPE credit. If only transfer pricing compliance were this easy, am I right? Before we dive into transfer pricing United States style, let's take a look at how it's making waves in the news. Thanks to the COVID-19 pandemic, the UK is pushing back Doc 6 deadlines by six months, meaning if you have reportable transactions from between June 5th, 2018 and June 30th, 2020, then they must be reported by February 28th, 2021. For arrangements between July 1st, 2020 and December 31st, 2020, Reports are expected within 30 days beginning on January 1st, 2021. The burdensome EU reporting requirement of cross-border transactions between intermediaries known as DOC6 has been backburned by other EU countries as well. Belgium, Ireland, and Luxembourg have also relaxed their deadlines. Finland, however, isn't so accommodating. It's not deferring its reporting requirements at all, and rumor has it that Portugal and Sweden will be just as stubborn. Solid transfer pricing documentation can save you from audits and penalties, but it can also help determine who owns the burden of proof, the tax authority or the taxpayer. That's at least what we've concluded from the June 25th Danish Supreme Court's reversal in Swiss multinational ADECO Group 
versus the Ministry of Taxation. In this case, the Ministry of Taxation argued that the ADECO subsidiaries' royalty rates were too high and didn't account for market conditions. It also argued that the taxpayer's documentation was insufficient and that the comparable uncontrolled price method was the wrong way to prove arm's length pricing. But while the Supreme Court did agree with the tax authority's downward adjustment, it also concluded the taxpayer's transfer pricing documentation checked all the boxes and that the taxpayer made good use of the comparable uncontrolled price method. Since the documentation was in good shape and met minimal Danish requirements, it was up to the tax authority to prove that the functional analysis was insufficient or that the comparability information was missing. But oops, the tax authority didn't seem to get that memo. So the Supreme Court sided, partially at least, with the taxpayer. Which begs the question, what can excellent transfer pricing documentation do for you? Israel's first tax circular for 2020 debuted on June 2nd. The purpose? To officially explain when, during an audit, the burden of proof switches from the taxpayer to the tax authority. And the conclusion is, not that often. Under the Israeli Income Tax Ordinance, taxpayers are expected to produce any transfer pricing studies, forms, documentation that the tax inspector wants. And the burden of proof is obviously still on the taxpayer. For the burden of proof to shift, documentation requirements must be followed to the letter. You can't miss a step. For example, if your transfer pricing study uses the transactional net margin method in a net cost plus arrangement and it fails to explain why the profit split method was not used, then sorry, no shift. The burden of proof is still with you, Mr. or Ms. Taxpayer. Abridged documents and incomplete transfer pricing studies will also keep the burden of proof with the taxpayer. And an incomplete transfer pricing study could mean anything from missing a complete search process to no reasoning for choosing a method and disregarding others, insufficient reasoning for dismissing comparable companies and not including comparable companies' data. And get this, even if you're operating at arm's length, if your documentation isn't up to snuff, well, the tax authorities can issue a, quote, tax assessment based on judgment. And does the burden of proof shift then? Not a chance. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. Barbara, as you know, we always like to start off with some get to know you questions. But since you're a repeat Fiona show guest and also a future Fiona show guest, hint, hint, <laughs> we're going to take this in a COVID-19 direction. You're based in the D.C. area. What's happening there in terms of COVID-19 restrictions? We have moved to phase 
two. So you can now, for example, get your hair done, which is, of course, a critically important thing. And you can eat in restaurants. They can have indoor seating, but it has to be no more than 50% capacity. Lots of outdoor seating this time of year around here. Outdoor seating certainly can be challenging at lunchtime because it's so hot, but we're moving slowly forward. I don't think that we may be going to phase three. I lose track of the phases, right? It's, can I go into the grocery store? Can I go get my hair cut? But things are slowly opening back up. Masks are still required in many places. And certainly in my neighborhood, my area, I see primarily, I see a lot of compliance with that requirement. So that's good, but it'll be a while. Oh, of course, of course. It'll be some time at that. Uh, How do you think the world might change as a result of this COVID-19 experience, i.e. more working from home, masks forever, online education, et cetera, et cetera? I think I am old and I... (laughs) Over my lifetime, I thought, okay, this is something that's going to cause a change that's going to be lasting. And I would say that in terms of the working from home, I think that for a lot of companies and like law firms and and accounting firms where rental payments are such a big line item on the expenses that I could imagine, and I think I have seen already, um, firms that are deciding to reduce their footprint. Um, so reduce the footprint, have more people able to telework more of the time. And I think they're going to be sort of forced to do that over time just because the revenues are just not going to necessarily be there. And I think as far as, you know, the mask wearing, I think my feeling is certainly I will not feel comfortable going out without one and being around people till there's a vaccine. And I think as soon as there's a vaccine and we can develop some some sense that, you know, we're we're going to be able to go out and about and not risk exposure to this highly contagious virus. You know, there may never be the old normal anymore, but I think that at some point we'll, you know, get back to, you know, going out and about. But again, I would not want to be an investor in commercial real estate right now because I do think that companies and firms are really going to rethink their needs for commercial real estate office for office. And and what do you think will be the biggest challenges in terms of transfer pricing 2020? The biggest challenge is going to be for all those companies who have, and I'm putting, I'm waving air quotes, which you can't see, but the air quotes of limited risk entities or routine entities that always tend to achieve a somewhat low but reasonably consistent margin of profit, just as in 07, 08, 09, 2010, the last sort of economic crash that we had, in order to provide quote-unquote routine profit to some entities, it means generating a disproportionate amount of loss or arguably a disproportionate amount of loss on you know, in the parent financials. So I can see, I mean, certainly when I, when I was working on dispute resolution, when I was at the IRS during the great recent crash, it was a big challenge for everyone to kind of distinguish between routine profits and the entire company has a bottom line that's red. 
So can you reasonably justify, let's say, to the parent country that I have to report more losses over here because I have to keep this other country happy with a little bit of profit? That's going to be a challenge for a lot. And any entity that has any affiliates that fall into that category, they will have to, I think, either find a way to give a persuasive argument to the home country that, well, I had to give them this profit because I'm not exactly sure why, or report the losses in that country and deal with the fallout from that country's tax authority who says, hey, but, 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 you always make money here. And again, because transfer pricing analysis is backward looking in terms of the financial data that you have, it's going to take a couple of years before it catches up so that the crushing downturn that's in going to show up in 2020 isn't going to show up in comp sets until 2021. So I think for me, that's going to be coming out of a pandemic world. The biggest challenge I think is going to be being able to justify either justify continuing to report profit in a country when the overall entity is losing money or trying to justify to the tax authority why you've lost money after all these years of saying you don't have a lot of risk. For the second part of the answer, counting for risk, do you think it's all going to rely on being able to tell the story of how much COVID-19 negates your risk? Like this is such a tsunami that the risk under normal circumstances just doesn't apply. Yes, I think that, you know, obviously (laughs) the tax authority will be aware that, you know, all has gone into the trash basket. But again, it's the being able to persuade. And again, you have to figure out like who you're going to persuade of what. Being able to show the country where you usually get the routine profits, the fact that you just don't have it. I think in that case, you may be able to go back and pull comp data from the last big downturn. So you go down and you pull data, you pull comp sets from 08, 09, 10, where often comp sets had a negative lower quartile because, you know, in some industries in particular, everybody was losing their shirt. So a couple of ways that you can try and persuade the tax authority that you really have to report a loss this year. One is, again, just explaining the impact overall on your business and the impact on your supply chain, because sometimes it's that my suppliers can't give me this and therefore I wasn't able to make my widget. Or going back, you can go back and say, here are a group of years where the economic conditions are much more similar to the ones that we experienced in 2020. And here's my comp set and it has a negative lower quartile. So... The fact that I lost money is, in fact, arm's length, given the economic conditions that I'm looking at. Right, right. Which, of course, will be most special uh, if we can put that politely uh, about all things post-COVID. Right. I think for the sake of theorizing, maybe that's as far as we can go. And in turning to the U.S., uh, which is our main subject for the for the program today, is the U.S. a member of the OECD? Yes, it is. It's a it's a very significant member of the well, it's a very significant member of the OECD, although they have recently pulled out of things. But anyway, yes, they are a member of the OECD. Is transfer pricing documentation required in the United States? Yes, it is. It has. Well, (laughs) required. It is 
quote unquote, required if you want to avoid a penalty. So it's a fine point, but it is one that is missed a lot of the times. You must provide documentation to justify your transfer prices if you want to avoid the 40% penalty can be imposed if the IRS makes a transfer pricing adjustment. And you don't actually give them the documentation with your return. It has to be, quote unquote, in existence on the day that you submit your return. So it is required if you want to avoid a penalty, but it is not required in the same way that filing your 1120 is required. Right, right, right. Um, contemporaneous documentation is also recommended to avoid penalties and it doesn't have to be disclosed or provided with a return. Right. But you have to be able to, if they, the first IDR that you're going to get information document request that you're going to get when you have a, a transfer pricing audit is please give us your documentation and it has to be dated on or before the date that you filed your return. This is why we love having you, Barbara. It's all the reading in between the lines that we need. And just to interrupt quickly to ask Fiona, Fiona, has the U.S. adopted the three-tier reporting recommended in BEPS Action 13? The U.S. has adopted country-by-country country reporting, Matt. It hasn't adopted the master and local file, however. And Barbara, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Of the documentation strongly recommended by the OECD that comes out of the BEPS project, the U.S. did adopt country-by-country country reporting, which I believe is what came out of Action Item 13, but they have not adopted master file and local file because they have had their own 10 principal documents since 94. Right. And what are the documentation requirements then? Yeah, the documentation requirements are, you know, what we transfer pricing geeks refer to as the 10 principal documents. And they're in 66, 64-6E or whatever. I no longer can remember it off the top of my head. Essentially, you need to provide a description of the business, a description of the industry, um, a description of the transactions. Um, you have to provide an analysis, a transfer pricing economic analysis that includes one of the, either one of the methods under 482 that have been put forward as specified methods, or that you use a method that isn't specified, but you lay all that out. So essentially the documentation is a way for the company to say, here are my intercompany transactions during this year. This is what my business does. This is what my industry is like. Here's my economic analysis. Here's my functional analysis. So you have to show for both the parent and the affiliates, sort of who does what, and then ultimately then say, here's my results, and they are within the range, and so therefore, you know, I have complied with the arm's length standard. These 10 principal documents, does this predate um, the OECD and BEPS, or does this come after? The documentation requirement came out of a long struggle that the IRS was having with taxpayers who were ratcheting up, you know, as, as global business was starting to move up, as, as it was easier to, to set up, let's say, a plant in Puerto Rico or in, um, you know, Mexico or wherever, um, 
And so cross-border intercompany business had been increased. The IRS had a series of very painful experiences with taxpayers where they would ask for information from the foreign affiliate and do, and the taxpayer would do something like give it to them in the language of the affiliate. So, oh, we have a German affiliate. Here's a whole truckload of documents and they're all in German or whatever. It was a very, very difficult, very big struggle. And um, there were, ta- you know, there were tax court cases where, you know, the IRS wasn't able to prevail in part because the IRS wasn't able to get data from the taxpayer to really look at what was going on. So as a result of those struggles, and as part of one one of the, whenever we had Tax Reforms Act or every other day, um, they decided, fine, we're going to make you tell us stuff. So we're going to make you tell us who you are, what do you do, what is your industry like, who does what function, you know, it was all sort of part of a, you know, the U.S. was very much in the front in terms of requiring documentation. Canada and Mexico were sort of quickly after that. I think Australia was early. But this was all how companies were back in the late 80s. So the U.S., I mean, long before the OECD, the OECD transfer pricing guidelines came out in 95. And while they did in 95 say make some noises like, yes, and of course it would be good if you were able to document your prices, there was no recommendation in the OECD guidelines that you document anything because their OECD was more concerned than the Internal Revenue Service was apparently with burdening taxpayers and companies with these, um, you know, requirements. That all happened in the 90s. And then when the BEPS project started, I guess maybe in 2012, OECD really took up the matter of documentation more thoroughly, realizing that in fact, you do actually need more robust information from a taxpayer than just here's my tax return in order to really understand how the taxpayers were structuring and charging their intercompany transactions. So country by country reporting came out of that. And then the OECD said, fine, master file and local file, we believe should be filed. That is the structure for transfer pricing documentation that we believe is the best structure. Just want to interrupt uh, really quick right here with our first CPE code word, and that word is baseball. What's more American than baseball? Uh, Does documentation have to be prepared annually? Well, again, you get into the have to be. Yes, in the sense that every year is different. And if you are documenting your intercompany transactions from 2019, then you want to prepare something for 2019 that would include the 2019 transactions. Having said that, U.S. taxpayers, and everybody knows this, I'm not saying something different or surprising, typically you do a full documentation study, soup to nuts, review and change every single section of it, maybe once every three years, depending on your industry and the size of your business and so forth. Typically, when I did documentation as a significant part of my job, about every three years, you essentially sort of started over. And then for the intervening years, you might have done a light touch on things like the functional analysis or, you know, the description of the business, but you update your comps, you update your ranges And as long as you have similar transactions one year to the next, 
you essentially just plug in the new numbers. I mean, only if something has significantly happened to change your business, would you then do a full-blown documentation study? Right. And what of transfer pricing methodologies does the U.S. prefer certain methods over others? The U.S. has no preferences. There was a time, again, in the old times, even maybe before me, this might have been even before I was doing transfer pricing, where there was a fairly strong preference for comparable uncontrolled price, you know, comparable transaction. That there was initially, when we started down this road of documentation, there was a very strong preference for transactional methods because arguably transactional methods are going to be the closest to your actual transaction. They're more reliable. You're not trying to find, you know, third parties and make adjustments to their results and have it be like yours. So there was at one time when they revised the Section 482 regulations in the 90s, they identified methods and they said, here's the comparable profits method. And this is how, and these are the profit level indicators and this is how you would do it. And here's cup and here's profit split and here's two different kinds of profit splits. And they identified methods, but then they had this or some other method. You could present an unspecified method and there's no hierarchy within those. It's not like you have to look for a cup first and then if you don't find it, you can use a profit method. The OECD much more favored transactional methods initially too, but I think we've all pretty much gotten to the point where, you know, profit-based methods are the most utilized, I believe. And Fiona, are local benchmarks required in the United States? Officially, no, Matt. The IRS wants the best comparables for a given transaction. If they are local, great. If they are foreign, so be it. And Barbara, do you have anything to add to that? If you're testing a U.S. company, then there's probably enough comparables in a data set for the United States that you would be able to have all U.S. companies in your set. And maybe even in Japan, you might be able to have it. But there are going to be countries where there just aren't going to be a lot of comparables in that country. And then regional sets are, you know, widely used. So you'll have a pan-European set, you'll have a pan-Asian set. You can have also industry, a set that like focuses on the oil and gas industry or set that, you know, you do want your comp sets to have some relationship in terms of the type of business with the business that you're testing. So even if local benchmarks aren't officially required, if there are benchmarks in the local area, use them. Yes, because that makes it a stronger case that the same types of economic conditions that were experienced by the tested party were also the same economic conditions that your comparables had. So for the same reason that you're going to try to find comps in your general industry, because you can then make a reasonable assumption that similar economic conditions apply to all of these similarly situated companies. And that would apply to whichever jurisdiction you're working with. Yes, yes. And again, regional sets are, you know, perfectly fine in some industries where you just don't have a lot of comps. Uh, in any one particular country, then you're going to look at, you know, a regional set. 
And does the IRS want a single year or multi-year analysis? Multi-year analysis is definitely sort of the norm. You look at three-year averages or you if there's been if there's been sort of significant economic conditions, you might stretch it out and look at a five-year average. Let me put it this way. You're going to be looking at your results for that year, and you're going to compare it with the average from your comp set of a multi-year average. You're not going to be comparing three years of taxpayer data with you know, three years of comp data. You're, test, you're always testing the results of whatever year you're filing. And what is transfer pricing scrutiny like in the United States? In other words, how likely are multinational companies to be audited? That's an interesting question. I think that because the IRS has the same budget now that I think it had about five years ago, to the extent that your audit exposure is somewhat limited and in large part has to do with the fact that there just aren't enough bodies. I think that there is, you know, if you're a major U.S. multinational, you're probably going to get audited at some point over, you know, a three to five year cycle, unless you're in the CAP program or something. If you engage in a big divestiture or or a big merger or something like that, that may cause you to be selected. You know, the IRS reads the papers and sees when companies, you know, have engaged in, if they announce that they're moving, let's say they're moving, they tell their shareholders, well, we're moving all our intellectual property to Ireland. Well, you know, IRS may go, really? Let's talk about that. So chances are, you know, it depends on your industry. It depends on your, your type of business model. I think, you know, obviously tech companies get a lot of scrutiny because there's a lot of dollars. I mean, it's also sort of where are the dollars. Indeed. And is transfer pricing methodology typically challenged in a transfer pricing audit? Sometimes. I'm not going to say there's anything typical. I think the audits that I, and I was never sort of on that side of it. I was always being incompetent authority. I was sort of post audit. But my sense is, my sense always was that if the taxpayer had used a reasonably okay method, but they just had results that seemed completely out of whack, that IRS might say, we're going to apply the same method, but use different comps. I believe that there was an, there were a couple of audit memos that were issued by Doug O'Donnell, who's the assistant commissioner of LB&I a couple of years ago. And one of the things that the audit memos instructed was that auditors needed to be able to articulate fully their reason for changing or testing the transactions using a completely different method than what the taxpayer had chosen. Similarly, though, but in the same memo, they were also instructed that even if you get documentation, if the documentation is crap, and doesn't include information that was available to the taxpayer at the time they wrote the documentation, then that documentation is not going to protect you from a penalty. And I think the IRS has been trying for the last few years to make the point to U.S. taxpayers that it is not uncommon, let's just say, for a company to put together the transfer pricing documentation. Okay, fine, we've got something, we've got some analysis, boom, we're done. And then, and it, and it is kind of, you know, crappy. 
and then the IRS gets it and then they go, wow, this is so crappy. Everything about this is wrong. But in order for the the IE, the International Examiner, to be able to impose the penalty, that IE had to demonstrate up one side and down the other why this documentation did not meet the requirements of 6662. And that was a very high bar and it was a big burden and it was a lot of work for the IEs. And so a lot of times it was just easier to say, fine, I'm going to hit you with a big adjustment here because your transfer pricing was crap. But since you gave me a documentation study, even though it was written on crayon, I won't be able to hit you with the penalty. And so in 2018, and, and Jennifer Best has been continuing to make this point to taxpayers since, that you know there is such a thing as inadequate documentation. If you give us documentation that doesn't really meet the requirements of 6662, then we will, in fact, impose the penalty and let you argue with us over whether your documentation was as crappy as we think. Right, right. And what industries and situations are most likely to be audited? I don't know that there is. I can't say that there is a, well, if you're in this industry. I mean, obviously, tech companies definitely seem to get audited because we hear about the tax court cases that they file. Because remember, the IEs are regional. So I'm in the IE and I'm on the West Coast, I'm in California, I'm, I'm likely to be looking at, you know, a tech company. I'm in IE and I'm in the Southwest and I'm in Texas, well, I may be looking more at oil and gas companies. So the IEs are located everywhere. So if I'm in the Southwest, I might have done, you know, 20 oil and gas audits and no tech audits. So it sort of depends. You do not want to be the biggest taxpayer in your region, I don't think. But Barbara, what about cost sharing? The IRS has revised regulations on this over and over again. They, they care about cost sharing if the Altera case is any measure. It depends on whether or not you're actually charging out your stock options. I mean, Altera and Xilinx involved specific items that being the cost associated with stock-based compensation. It was used initially by tech companies. It was part of the compensation. You know, there were all sorts of issues in the very earliest days over valuing and how do you value it? And when do you value it? And how does it show up in the financials and all that? But it is clearly an element of benefit to the employee. And so then the question became, you know, should the value of the stock-based compensation be included in the cost pool so that all of the cost-sharing participants had to share in that particular cost. And Xilinx, the court said, yo, you're allowed to leave them out. The IRS came back again in Altera. The tax court agreed with the taxpayer again in Altera and then went to the Ninth Circuit. And the Ninth Circuit said, yeah, no, we think that. Um, and, and the IRS, in the meantime, modified the regulations to make it explicit that stock-based compensation must be included in the cost pool. So in Altera, they were challenging that particular regulation. And the Ninth Circuit said it was fine. They followed all the requirements of the Administrative Procedures Act. It's not unreasonable or you know nonsensical to say that stock-based compensation should be part of the cost pool. 
So it has to be part of the cost pool. So the the cost sharing, really, the stock-based compensation is just the big issue. And this week, of course, was when the Supreme Court denied cert for Altera, which, you know, doesn't surprise me at all because the IRS is very reluctant most of the time to even take tax cases. Supreme Court, yeah, Supreme Court is like, meh. They don't, they don't wade into tax cases. They don't grant cert in tax cases very often anyway. And this was just not the kind of a case that they would most likely have weighed in on. And they, and they denied cert. So Altara stands as it is. Even outside of Altera, though, I think cost sharing writ large can be a red flag for an audit, even in the United States. Yeah, I mean, possibly. It's sort of... Again, it sort of depends. Like everything else with with transfer pricing, the fact that you have a cost-sharing arrangement might mean that the auditor might ask, like give you an IDR and ask for your documentation and then, you know, try and figure out, having read it, whether they think you're engaged in the, I'll use the technical tax term shenanigans. And if they don't think you've engaged in shenanigans, then they'll, they'll let it go. But it's not like a, it's not necessarily like a blinking red light. You got to look at me, but if I'm an IE in a area that doesn't have a lot of, you know, big clients or clients that do a lot of intercompany transactions and there's a client, there's a taxpayer there and they have a cost sharing, you might say, fine, I think I'd like to, I'd like to look at your transfer pricing documentation, please. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp now barbara we know it's not like you to have strong opinions about transfer pricing cough cough but we did catch an article that you wrote recently for bloomberg tax called the 10 principal documents is it time to move on and do we recall you expressing some faint opinions about documentation requirements in the united states what are the weaknesses in current u.s documentation requirements and what would you like to see happen in terms of u.s transfer pricing documentation yes i did write said article and fundamentally once the oecd came up with master file and local file when the oecd first came up with their own sort of standard structure for transfer pricing documentation 
the initial thought was, well, it's just like the 10 principal documents. I can stick this section in here and this section in here. It's all the same. And I think that what my article says and what I believe is true is that because the OECD didn't come up with its documentation standards until after we had 20 years of experience with documentation, they were able to come up with a very robust documentation framework. So the master file is tell me about your business. What do you do? Where are you doing it? How do you do it? And so tell us specifically about your research and development. Where do you do that? How do you do that? Um, so the master file basically asks taxpayers to drill down on items which over the years have proved to be problematic from a transfer pricing perspective. Whereas the 10 principal documents is pretty much tell us about your company, tell us about your industry, give us a functional analysis, give us an economic analysis, you know, whatever the other six things are that make 10 principal documents and then we're done. And I think that the OECD, with the benefit of all the years of experience, realized that they wanted to know more. That if you ask, you know, if you ask specifically, you need to describe your research and development process and who does what for who, then it's harder for taxpayers to, I'm not going to say hide, but it comes to light more easily what aspects of the research and development process, if any, could be resulting in some sort of transfer pricing, again, using the technical term shenanigans. And the local file, basically, OECD said, we're going to do this master file and we're going to want to know a lot of things about your business. We're going to want to know, for example, what are your 10 most profitable lines of business? You got to tell us that in your master file. And then the local file is, okay, now as to the intercompany transactions you have in this country, now you drill down. That's where you give us your economic analysis of the transactions. That's where you give us your functional analysis. So the local file has much more in common with the 10 principal documents than master file. But so you have U.S.-based multinationals that increasingly are being required to do master file and local file. Oh, and everybody has agreed that we need to do country-by-country country documentation. And then for U.S.-based multinationals, there's still companies with a U.S. filing requirement. They're still hanging out there. Oh, and you have to do these 10 principal documents. I'm not sure whether it was included with my article or not, but I'm in the process with a colleague, a former colleague of mine, of putting together actually a portfolio for BNA, strategic global transfer pricing. And we have in there a comparison, a side-by-side -side comparison, the U.S. documentation rules and master file and local file. And it's very clear when you look at that, master file and local file, like there's nothing in the U.S. 10 principal documents that isn't covered by master file and local file. And there's a boatload of stuff that the OECD documentation asks you for that the U.S. doesn't. And so you have companies, they're having to do master file and local file, but then they also still have to do this 10 principal documents thing. And the IE is going to be asking for your 10 principal documents. And, you know, the IE might ask you also for your master file and local file if you had prepared them. But it's just yet another document for taxpayers to have to put together. So I feel like, you know, the U.S. was way ahead of the curve in terms of actually having, requiring taxpayers to prepare documentation. But at this point, over the years, we are at a point where it's not the sort of thing that 
everybody has outpaced us, right? So the OECD has come up with a much more robust, much more 21st century, let me say, set of rules. And you learn a lot more as a, as a tax authority. All right, you're high there. Um, as a tax authority, you learn a lot more with the master file and local file than you do with the 10 principal documents. But because 6662 or 6664, 6E, whatever it is, um, still exists and still sits there, taxpayers feel compelled to put together something that they can put on the front page, 6662 documentation, you know, so you can hand it over. Um, so uh, what I encouraged, and I doubt Treasury is going to, they have bigger fish to fry at this point, but what I encouraged and suggested in my article was that the U.S. just needs to modify the regulations to adopt master file and local file. They already have adopted country by country. So just do all those things and stop making U.S. taxpayers go through this very artificial somewhat useless exercise. Right, right. And you mentioned that the OECD model, the master file and local file provide more information than what the U.S. is actually asking about. What kinds of information are included in these documents that are not included in the U.S. documents? The two really big things that I think are somewhat critical are master file asks you identify, and I forget, 10 or 15, maybe it's your 10, most profitable products or lines of business or whatever. They ask taxpayers to say, what are my 10 most profitable or you know, 10 biggest products? And to the extent that any other product that at least like 5% of the profit is attributable to that product include, or maybe 10, I can't remember the numbers anymore, but essentially Masterfile asks you to tell essentially where are you making your money? Like what are you selling that makes you money? The other thing that Masterfile does ask specific questions about are R&D activities. Where do you do your R&D? What kind of R&D do you do? Uh, you know, what are your relationships with R&D? And while arguably the US would include some discussion of research and development in the 10 principal documents, it's not a focus. There's no tell me about who's doing what where. And so those are the two things are share with me specific information about what it is you're selling that you make money on. And then also tell me about your research and development. Those are those are two big ones that that jump out at me. You know, the master file does ask for a very robust discussion of the business itself and the industry. Like I said, local file has more of the parts that are part of the 10 principal documents. So your local file is going to say, these are my transactions in this country. Here's my economic analysis. Here it shows that my results in this country are within the ar an arm's length range, whatever right, method right. I use. So if Treasury did adopt the OECD setup, would it lessen the burden for the IRS as well? If they were to switch from the say, you know what, we're going to withdraw, we're going to replace the 6662 documentation requirements with master file and local file. Certainly, there are IEs, international examiners, that would have to sort of relearn what am I doing, what am I looking at, what, you know, what, what is this thing I'm looking at, and 
you know, I can't just go to section five and know I'm going to find this or that. So certainly there would have to be some degree of ramping up training or whatever to get the IEs used to doing audits with these documents instead of the regular 6662. My sense of it is, and from what I know of IEs and my working with them, is they would be delighted to be able to get more information than what they get out of the principal and principal documents. And invariably, if you're, you know, not all taxpayers do this, but you know, if I'm on my third redo of a of a transfer pricing study and you send it in and maybe there are things you didn't really address and you're like, ah, I'm not going to address that, but if they ask me about it, I'll be willing to say it, but my documentation will protect me from a penalty. Well, now you would be saving the IEs from having to develop specific IDRs about, tell me about your research and development activities, tell me about you know, where you're making your money. So I would think because the information they'll be getting would be much more robust and complete that the international examiners would be delighted to get master file and local file and would prefer that, I believe, to what's currently in 10 principal documents. How does the local file stand up to the U.S. requirement? As we were talking, I was just actually pulling up my worksheet from my portfolio. And basically, local file, like of the 10 principal documents, the master file only really has, there's only two parts of the U.S. documentation requirements that are within the master file. And then most of the rest of the requirements that you'd have for U.S. documentation is in local file. So your org chart, your description of the transactions, you know, the overview of your business, description of the methods selected, description of the comps. I mean, even there, the um, the local file for OECD, you know, asks for a detailed description of the business and business strategy pursued by the local entity, including letting me know whether the local entity has been involved in a business restructuring or an intangibles transfer. And so even with the local file, you know, in the local file, they ask for a list of the key local competitors. Now, I have certainly done documentation studies for the U.S. where I have, in fact, identified the primary competitors in the market, but it's not required in the documentation and it's something that can be helpful to know. And so the local file asks for copies of all the material intercompany agreements. Intercompany agreements are typically asked for in an RDR once you've opened a transfer pricing audit, but having those agreements there, having all that information in front of you certainly saves time in the sense that you don't have to put together multiple sets of IDRs and give them to the taxpayer and the taxpayer has their 30 days or 90 days or whatever to get it back to you, and it can drag things out. So there are more sections, let me put it this way, there are more sections of the 10 principal documents that match up with the local file than match up with the master file. The U.S. requirements seem more reactive in that case than, than proactive. Um, they weren't at the time, but I think that we've learned so much more and um, and also just business models themselves have expanded. And, you know, in 1990, um, 
you know, in 1992 or 94, you know, there, did we, like, there was there even such, such a thing as digital economy? Uh, no. Right, right. They're going back for more information instead of having it up front. Right, 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 right. And and that's nothing, you know, they were amazing when, when they issued, when they first put the documentation into place, it was very much, you know, ahead of the curve. And there were a whole lot of countries that were like, oh, what? You know? <laughs> and so it's no surprise that Mexico and Canada followed relatively quickly because of the significant, you know, amount of trade between and among right, the three. Right. And in your article, you share a quote from Jennifer Best, the director of treaty and transfer pricing documentation at the IRS, when she spoke to a group about the challenges the IRS examiners face when they look at transfer pricing documentation. I just want to share that because we, we found it so telling. Um, quote, sometimes we get documentation with just a list of the facts and the factors describing a business description, but it's not a real analysis she said uh, you can further uh, you can list a whole bunch of facts uh, but you have you, but you have got to tell the whole story compare it to the law um, compare it to the law and really give a robust analysis we get a list of functions but no real analysis more often than we should barbara have you noticed this when you work with clients to be honest i haven't actually primarily worked on documentation for a while i think that but I, I will say that my experience, again, the mindset of the print, 10 principal documents was a particular mindset, right? It, these are the rules. This is what I'm expecting to get. And so while I would always encourage clients, and certainly we always worked with clients to try to accomplish this goal of I have told such a compelling transfer pricing story that you get to the end and you close it and you go, okay, there's nothing to see here. I mean, that's always your goal is to not have the, i.e. read your documentation and come out of it with more questions. Um, so that's always been your goal. But I think that, again, to Jennifer's point, over time, I'm not going to say that, you know, companies get lazy because it's not that you get lazy, but it becomes much more of a compliance sort of thing as opposed to a, I can affirmatively keep my company out of trouble by making sure I'm telling a compelling story that fits together for why I have this or that transfer pricing policy and how the policy reflects my business and not the other way around. And I think that there's a certain amount of when you have to do it every single year and your business hasn't changed very much any year, then there is just a natural, okay, I already did that. Let me read through this. I'll change a few words. I'm done. And, and so I, I, I think that Jennifer and Jennifer in her comments, again, reflected the, the advice in the audit memo where, you know, it was basically said to IEs or said, you know, and to taxpayers to read them, you know, don't think you can just give us crappy documentation and it'll save you from a penalty. Because if you give us bad documentation, we're going to call it no documentation and we're going to hit you with that penalty. And I think that's, you know, the frustration that Jennifer was reflecting is the 
you know, been there, done that. I've been doing this transfer pricing documentation for 20 years and it's always the same. And, and sometimes too, with the documentation, you might have a disconnect between the operational people and the tax people. So, you know, the tax people don't find out that the operational people did something different until sort of the end of the year and you're scrambling. But, you know, certainly none of the documentation stays. I worked on, but it is a challenge to invest the time and the effort and the money into preparing that transfer pricing documentation every year. So there are times when you say, oh, I just did that last year. I don't have to do that again. In, in essence, in that case, you have to earn the penalty protection. Like in school, you don't get points for good attendance. You have to do the work for, for the points. You, you don't get them just for showing up. That's exactly, that is an extremely good analogy. You don't, you know, there's no, you don't get any points just for be sitting in your seat. You really do have to be able to. And again, I mean, how many times have I said this? I've said this to you. I've said this to other groups that I've spoken with. You have to tell the story in such a way so that when they finish reading your documentation, they close it and they think nothing to see here. Let me go find a company that, you know, maybe might be, you know, engaging in some shenanigans. But I mean, that's the whole, the whole point of it is to be able to present it in a reasonable way. Well, first of all, you have to start with reasonable, compliant with the arm's length standard transfer pricing policies. And then you have to be able to explain those policies and those transactions to the tax authorities in a way that they, that they say, you know what, I could audit you, but I'm likely to end up giving you a no change. So I'm going to move on to some other U.S. taxpayer who might very well not have not told as good a story or have something that, you know, I can get at and find and whack them with. And what kinds of issues, omissions do you see when you have reviewed U.S. transfer pricing documentation? I think sometimes, and again, because you typically only do a full review and rewrite the full document every few years and not necessarily every year, you, you can sometimes find yourself looking at something and realizing that, that there's something in there that you definitely need to change that you're describing sort of how the business model was two years ago and didn't take into account that the industry changed a lot or you bought another company and you've got to take that into consideration in your, in your argument. But it's just being able to read it and feel like everything is fresh, everything is new, everything's been reviewed. And frankly, because... <laughs> It's a tedious, burdensome exercise. There's only so much money that, that a company can put towards tax compliance. I mean, sometimes it's, you know, the, the company doesn't take transfer pricing seriously enough, but sometimes it's that they are taking it seriously enough, but they just aren't keeping up enough with it. And, it, and that's why you have, like, one of the things that, particularly after I came out of Compton Authority, you know, one of my sort of things that people pay me money to do is give me your documentation, and I'll read it, and I'll flag stuff, and I'll say, this doesn't, this looks like it's seven years old, and this looks, and you can, you know, have that outside eyes because it's like anything else. I mean, how many times do you write something and you type it up and there's a typo and you don't even notice it because you wrote it. And so sometimes just having 
somebody from outside who also isn't involved in the documentation process, just read everything and flag things that don't quite connect. Because you don't necessarily write your documentation like you're writing a novel, but the IEs and the auditors tend to read your documentation like they're reading a novel. And I just want to interrupt here with our third CPE code word. That word is wristwatch. Nothing really American here. Just wanted to throw you. (laughs) I'm glad you enjoyed that. In April 2020, the IRS published guidelines advising companies on good documentation, noting that it's not just having documentation, but the quality of the documentation that matters. In a recent Bloomberg tax article, you were quoted as saying, and this is this is the quote, a well-advised company all along would be advised to make sure the transfer pricing documentation tells such a story that the auditor looks at it and says, okay, and then closes it and is done with it. For the IRS specifically, Barbara, what does that documentation look like? And I would say that that documentation has to connect one to the other to the other. In other words, you know, when you describe your company and then you describe your industry and then you start describing your transactions, they have to go, oh, of course, those would make sense. Those would be the transactions I would expect given this company, given this industry, as opposed to, oh, we did this thing sort of off to the side, get the auditor to go, huh, that just doesn't seem to track for me. It's like, and I think I've told this, you know, joke before with you guys, but, you know, the hunters are out in the woods and the bear comes crashing through and the one guy is tying his shoes and the other guy says, what are you doing? You can't outrun the bear. And the guy says, I don't need to outrun the bear. I just need to outrun you. And and so, you know, you don't need to, you know, you, you just need to make sure that you're the taxpayer that's farther away from the bear and that you have written, again, a consistent story that makes sense and that follows and that follows sort of logic. And one of the things about Masterfile that I very much like is that it does allow and require that kind of storytelling. You know, what are your most valuable products? Like, how do you do your R&D? Where do you put these functions? And And it does give taxpayers an opportunity to, again, tell the full story instead of a snippet here, like, here's my economic analysis, and you've read my functional analysis, and then you read my economic analysis. Those two have to flow one from the other. You don't want an economic analysis that seems to focus on functions that you didn't really discuss, something like that. And again, I think that you know, U.S. taxpayers have been slogging through this documentation for 25 years. And I think that for a lot of them, okay, I have a big operation in France and France says I've got to do master file. Well, the large U.S. multinationals are going to have to do master file and local file anyway. So why make them keep doing the U.S. SEM principal documents on top of it? And I think it, it provides tax authorities with much better, more robust information from which to make a decision to dive into a transfer pricing audit than the 10 principal documents do. And uh, some transfer pricing experts view these guidelines as a sign that the IRS will increase scrutiny of transfer pricing documentation. Do you think that's true? I don't know whether you'd say increase scrutiny of. I mean, every single audit of a U.S. Ta- transfer pricing audit of a U.S. taxpayer starts with the documentation, I think. 
that they started signaling in 2018 when they said something to the effect of, if you provide additional information, like if we get your documentation and we immediately have to ask you a bunch of questions, and then you supplement that with information that was in existence and could have been included in the documentation from Jump Street, then that's not going to protect you from a penalty. Starting two years ago, IRS was giving taxpayers the heads up, not all documentation is created equal. And if you give us documentation that's really crappy, we might just decide that we're going to impose a penalty on you and you're going to have to defend the completeness of your documentation and the fact that you actually met all the requirements. They've been moving down this road for a while. And I think, and so I think that you may find an IE that goes through the process of when they make the transfer pricing adjustment, also imposing the penalty, even if the IE was given documentation at the beginning of the audit, they'll have to, you know, that will definitely be some sort of test case, but it wouldn't surprise me because the way you get people's attention, right, is you do something like that and you say, we're going to hit you with the penalty anyway, because you gave us documentation that simply didn't meet the requirements of 6660. And I think that if they were to replace the 10 principal documents with master file, first, the IEs would get much more robust information And second, the taxpayers wouldn't have to make, put together four documents instead of three. Easier and more efficient. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I just think that the master file and the the types and the scope of information in master file and local file are so much more robust and so much more helpful to someone that's trying to, you know, audit somebody's transfer prices. And again, the OECD was able to, you know, gather and observe and consider 20 years of, um, of uh, documentation experience. I think maybe they put the documents, I forget if it's a 2010 or 2013, where they came out with, hey, these might be sort of interesting things to put together. But it wasn't until BEPS that, you know, the most recent BEPS release that they said, we believe these should be required. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University every Tuesday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai tpu.
now it's time for my favorite part of the show. Maybe it's yours. Uh, I, I, I don't know if you have any preferences on, on, on segments <laughs> in the show, but it's called What We Want to Know. Here's where we basically try to steal some wisdom from our experts without them realizing it. Wait, did I say that out loud? Barbara, by now, you know the drill. We're putting you in the hot seat for a rapid fire round of personal philosophies on professional subjects or something like that. Are you ready? I I was born ready. Excellent. And here we go. If you were a transfer pricing executive at a multinational company today, what would you be most concerned about in terms of the future? I would be most concerned about for the immediate future that my company stays in business and that as a transfer pricing professional, that I be able to get all the results of all my transactions and be able to explain losses, let's say, to all the various tax authorities. And as a tax transfer pricing attorney, what message do you want to send to all of your transfer pricing clients today? Don't let the transfer pricing tail wag the business dog. Um, When you are designing your transactions and you're looking at who's going to do what for who, um, you do have to let your business and your business model drive your transactions and not the other way around. As a business owner, what is your favorite management strategy? (laughs) Well, I'm a business owner who has no employees. So my favorite management strategy is to pat myself on the back (laughs) at the end of Friday and have some wine. (laughs) <laughs> and kick back, right? Uh, and and you've been in tax for years now. What changes have you noticed for women in tax? That's an interesting question. I think I'm encouraged by the fact that I've certainly seen more women in higher positions in the firms that I've worked at, at IRS. I think that when I first started Covering tax. I started covering tax when I was at tax management before I actually started doing it for a living. And so I'd go to these conferences and there was always a big long line in the men's room and there was never a line in the ladies room. <laughs> and so going to a tax conference, you knew that you probably weren't going to have a line in the ladies room. And I'm encouraged by the fact that it does seem that the people who attend and the people that are involved in the various issues are there are more women than there were when I first started covering it. So I'm glad about that. And we always ask, but it's always great food for thought. Everyone defines success differently. What's your definition? Ooh. Um, I think for me, success is being able to go to sleep at night without, without feeling like I haven't done something that I could have done. For my clients, it's um, feeling that I'm able to give them the tools that they need to deal with the tax authorities. I do a ton of um, volunteer work with low-income taxpayers. You know, uh, I consider it a success if I'm able to do a correct tax return for somebody who wouldn't have no idea how to do it otherwise and get refunds they deserve. So um, I think it's just being able to <laughs> being able to sleep at night um, and know that you've done the best you could. 
Now do you see why we've invited Barbara to be a guest on the show so many times? You get great expertise, strategies, advice, and she's funny too. Wish we could say that about everyone in tax. Just kidding, of course. Thanks again for talking with us today, Barbara. Can't wait for next time. Hint, hint. As for you listeners, that about wraps up our show. But Barbara will be back again someday. Again, hint, hint. And between now and then, we'll be discussing all kinds of transfer pricing topics. Don't miss those riveting discussions. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and we'll fill you in on transfer pricing every week. While you're at it, download our sister podcast, too. I mean, you're right there. The Fiona Show, hot off the press, and we'll fill you in on transfer pricing in the news every week. I'm Matthew DeMello, and they let me host, edit, and engineer this podcast. Our executive producer, Marilyn Mitchum-Strom, writes our scripts. As for today, that's all she wrote. So until next time, stay safe and stay sane.